The word dramaturgy is unusual enough that my phone's autocorrect function changes it to dramaturgy. Even for theater makers, the concept is nebulous enough to prompt articles about it in major newspapers with headlines like, What the Bleep is a Dramaturg? In my dramaturgy classroom, I aim to demystify dramaturgy as an art form by recognizing that, as scholars and theater makers, we all already commit acts of dramaturgy regularly and enthusiastically. In my books, dramaturgy is an act of creation and more of a mindset than a set of rules, regulations, and duties. I'm Professor Molly Seremet, and it's such a thrill to welcome you back for season two of Writ in the Margins, a podcast that harnesses dramaturgical thinking as a performative act of creation. This podcast was conceptualized, researched, written, produced, and realized by the graduate students in the Shakespeare and Performance Program at Mary Baldwin University. For season two, we are bringing you 13 episodes that unpack, investigate, reimagine, and sometimes even push against five wildly different plays. El Muerto Dissimulado, or Presumed Dead, by Angela de Azevedo. The Antipodes, by Richard Broom. The Island Princess, by John Fletcher. Loa to the Divine Narcissus, by Sor Juana Inez de la Cruz. And Life is a Dream, by Pedro Calderón de la Barca. These plays sit alongside Shakespeare in the universe of early modern drama, but each has its own unique terrain and orbit. And each episode offers a close look at key features of the landscape from a dramaturgical perspective. In their research, students have deployed tools of structural analysis, contextual synthesis, and creative intervention, and have intermingled their research with performed scenes, original music, and special features galore. Feel free to listen to the episodes in this season in any order. I hope you'll also go back and revisit season one as well. Do visit our website for show notes, transcripts, and bibliographic materials. We appreciate the support of Mary Baldwin University's Shakespeare and Performance Program in this endeavor. Now that's enough for me. On to your episode of Writ in the Margins. Content advisory warning. This episode contains depictions of hanging as well as depictions of violence. It also deals with heavy topics including the prosecution of individuals for witchcraft. Listener discretion is suggested. Elizabeth Sawyer, you are now come unto the place of execution. Is that all true which you confessed unto me Tuesday last, when that you were in prison? I have it here, and will now read it unto you, as you spake it then unto me, out of your own mouth, and, if it be true, confess it now to God, and to all the people that are here present. Question. What said you to the devil, when he came unto you, and spake unto you? Were you not afraid of him? If you did fear him, what said the devil then unto you? Answer. I was in a very great fear when I saw the devil, but he did bid me not to fear him at all for he would do me no hurt at all, but would do for me whatsoever I should require of him. And as he promised unto me, he always did such mischiefs as I did bid him to do, both on the bodies of Christians and beasts. If I did bid him vex them to death, as oftentimes I so bid him, it was then presently by him so done. This confession which is now read unto me by Master Henry Goodcole Minister, 
with my own mouth, I spake it to him on Tuesday last at Newgate. And here I do acknowledge to all the people that are here present that it is all true, desiring you to all pray unto Almighty God to forgive me my grievous sins. By what means hope you now to be saved? By Jesus Christ alone. Will you now pray unto Almighty God to forgive unto you all your misdeeds? I, with all my heart and mind. Elizabeth Sawyer, you have been tried and convicted of witchcraft, which is a treason, and the punishment for which is death. You have confessed your sins before the Almighty God, and you are now to be hung with a rope by the neck until dead, on this, the 19th day of April, in the year of our Lord, 1621. May God have mercy on your soul. Amen. This is MBU Shakespeare and Performance Presents, Writ in the Margins. In this episode, we'll be diving into The Witch of Edmonton by Decker, Rowley, and Ford. We'll discuss the base text of the play and look at the woman on whom it is based, Elizabeth Sawyer. Then we'll take a look at the practice of witchcraft in the early modern period and how it is represented in the play. Finally, we'll discuss how a modern production of Witch of Edmonton might look and how theater practitioners might integrate some of this information into their work. Let's jump right in, shall we? Yes, absolutely. You want to start with our biography of Elizabeth Sawyer? Sure. Elizabeth Sawyer was a poor woman from Edmonton, Middlesex. She was convicted of witchcraft and murder in April of 1621 and was subsequently executed. The entirety of what is known about Elizabeth Sawyer is drawn from The Wonderful Discovery of Elizabeth Sawyer, a pamphlet written by Henry Goodcole, a member of the clergy who took Sawyer's confession before her execution. We don't even have trial records for her case. So, a lot of Witch of Edmonton is purely speculative. Almost all of it, yes. Knowing where this information comes from, then, we might want to take it with a grain of salt. Yes. Clearly, Good Cole had some ulterior motives when publishing the pamphlet. A lot of the language is fairly obviously religious propaganda. Even if the confession itself is word for word, there is a pretty good chance she was coerced into giving it. Anyway, the pamphlet claims that she had a husband and children, although they too accused her of witchcraft, and the community believed her to be a witch long before she was formally accused. The inciting incident that finally brought the suspicions of witchcraft to a head was the death of Sawyer's neighbor, Agnes Radcliffe. Following a dispute between the two over a pig that Sawyer had supposedly killed via witchcraft, Radcliffe fell ill and, on her deathbed, accused Sawyer of killing her out of malice over the dispute. Over a pig? Yep. Seems pretty petty. Sawyer had only been suspected of causing more minor harm to people up to this point. This dramatic deathbed accusation was taken as a call to action. The investigators performed one final test. They took thatch from Sawyer's roof and burned it. The belief was that if the woman appeared without being summoned once the thatch was lit, she was a witch. Sawyer did apparently appear without being summoned when the thatch from her roof was lit on fire. Here's a quote from the pamphlet. Quote, to find out who should be the author of this mischief, an old, ridiculous custom was used, 
which was to pluck the thatch of her house and to burn it and being so burned the author of such mischief should presently then come and it was observed and affirmed to the court that elizabeth sawyer would presently frequent the house of them that burnt the thatch which they plucked off of her house and come without any sending for end quote seems pretty thin evidence to put someone to death over what if she was just trying to be a good neighbor can you imagine bringing someone a casserole and being arrested for witchcraft what did they say the custom was old and ridiculous old and ridiculous even the pamphlet is admitting the evidence is flimsy even so these two pieces of evidence after eight or more years of suspicion caused the town to finally formally accuse sawyer of witchcraft she was quickly convicted and executed itself was registered with the stationer's company on April 27th of that year, 10 days after her interview and 8 days after her execution. According to the Oxford Dictionary of National Biography, Good Cole was, quote, evasive, indeed panicky, in locating his account in relation to current debates about witchcraft, and he claimed merely to relate the truth of the case, end quote. Why was he worried about it? Either A, because some people might have known he was lying, or B, he didn't want to be associated with witchcraft. He also claims to have published the pamphlet, quote, to defend the truth of the cause, which in some measure hath received a wound already by most base and false ballads, which were sung at the time of our returning from the witch's execution, end quote. Wait, they sang songs? Yep. Witch hunting songs were apparently fairly popular. There were a couple even registered with the stationer's company. Profane pastimes of the witch's mad humors and the witch's dance. Can we hear one? Sadly, no known copy of either song exists unfortunate. Indeed. Anyway, despite Goodcole's protestations, his pamphlet made Elizabeth Sawyer's case sensational in England. The pamphlet details the events leading up to the trial of Sawyer and interviews her before her execution. That's where the dramatization we started the episode came from. With some artistic liberties taken, of course. Naturally. It begins by summarizing the events that culminated in the accusations of witchcraft against Sawyer, followed by a transcript of Goodcole's interview with her in Newgate Jail. Goodcole's conversation with Sawyer in jail details each instance of witchcraft Sawyer was supposed to have committed. That's witchcraft in air quotes, right? Yeah. Some of the stuff she was accused of seems fairly benign. Like what? Well, there's a whole section about ferrets. Apparently she was seen by the village children feeding a white ferret, which she denies in her interview with Goodcole. The white ferret reappears in the narrative because someone claimed to see it running on the roof of her house. Sawyer denied all supernatural white ferret allegations. I'd love to watch a modern court drama where they accuse the defense of witchcraft and their evidence is ferret-based. I would pay good money for that. What else was she accused of? Well, more damnably, she's accused of and confirms that she has been conversing with the devil in the form of a dog, Tom, and even confirms that she has murdered two children and many animals belonging to those she hates. However, she denies murdering her neighbor, Agnes Radcliffe. So even she thought the original piece of evidence was BS. Listen to the following reading of a selection from the interview between Goodcole and Sawyer. Sawyer describes how her relationship with the devil dog operated and confesses, or denies, certain accusations. Whether would the devil bring unto you word or no, what he had done for you at your command? He would always bring unto me word what he had done for me, 
within the space of a week. He never failed me at that time, and would likewise do it to creatures and beasts two manner of ways, which was by scratching or pinching of them. Of what Christians and beasts? And how many were the number that you were the cause of their death? And what moved you to prosecute them to the death? I have been, by the help of the devil, the means of many Christians and beasts' death. The cause that moved me to do it was malice and envy. For if anybody had angered me in any manner, I would be so revenged of them and of their cattle. And do now further confess that I was the cause of those two nurse children's death, for the which I was now indicted and acquitted by the jury. Whether did you procure the death of Agnes Ratcliffe, for which you were found guilty by the jury? No, I did not by any means procure against her the least hurt. How long is it since the devil and you had acquaintance together, and how often times in the week would he come and see you, and you company with him? It is eight years since our first acquaintance, and three times in the week the devil would come and see me, after such his acquaintance gotten of me. He would come sometimes in the morning and sometimes in the evening. In what shape would the devil come unto you? Always in the shape of a dog and of two colors, sometimes of black and sometimes of white. A little refresher for our audience. The trial of Elizabeth Sawyer became so famous that within the year, a play was written about it entitled The Witch of Edmonton. The authors, William Rowley, Thomas Decker, and John Ford, capitalized on the hubbub surrounding the case and drew significant inspiration from Goodcole's pamphlet, even lifting some text verbatim from the Sawyer interview. Elizabeth Sawyer's trial and execution took place in April of 1621. The Witch of Edmonton saw its first performance perhaps as early as the summer of that same year, although the first official performance was in December of 1621 by Prince Charles's men at the Cockpit Theatre in London as it was entered into the stationer's register in May 1658. While many of the hallmarks of the case were kept intact, likely for audience recognition, the plot, supporting characters, and even Sawyer herself underwent some massive changes for dramatic effect. Such changes include the introduction of the love triangle between Frank, Winifred, and Susan, and the Morris dancing Cuddy Banks, as well as the removal of the real-life Sawyer's husband and children from the narrative. We find Sawyer in Witch of Edmonton still scorned by the society she lives in. She is beaten and harassed by the good Christian men in power in the town, and summons the devil dog Tom by trying to curse them on her own. Her relationship with Tom is not dissimilar to what the real-life Sawyer describes in Goodcole's pamphlet. However, the playwrights leave it up to the reader's interpretation whether or not Tom causes any human's actual harm. Tom is witness to many of the sinister events of the play, such as bigamist Frank stabbing his wife Susan, but it is unclear whether he caused Frank to murder her or not. The Witch of Edmonton ends with Elizabeth Sawyer being executed, just as she was in real life. The tone of the story, however, is sympathetic to Sawyer's plight as a marginalized member of society. Decker, Rowley, and Ford seem to be making a commentary about the hysteria and hypocrisy surrounding witchcraft in the 1600s. The true villains of the story are the elite in the society who persecute those less fortunate than themselves. So, let's talk about witchcraft in this period more generally so we can have a better understanding of the context surrounding Sawyer's trial and execution. Sure thing. Are we going to look at a spell book? No, I thought we might discuss the perception of witchcraft more than the practice itself. 
You see, while we do have some texts, like the Ars Godia, there weren't as many self-identified witches back then as there are now. And that's not just because we have billions more people on Earth now, right? Right. Witchcraft was treason and carried with it, as you heard earlier, a death sentence. I imagine that made recruiting for your coven difficult. Most likely. Because there were a lot fewer witches, we know a lot less about how they practiced witchcraft. So what do we know? Well, we mostly know what everyone else thought about witches. Are you going to read us quotes from someone's diary? Not exactly. In 1597, King James VI of Scotland published the book Demonology. Six years later, when he was also named King of England, it was republished and gained a much wider audience. The book is a compendium of different kinds of magic, which it expressly condemns. A big section of the book focuses on witchcraft. This book is contemporary to Elizabeth Sawyer? Very much so. It was the stated belief of the monarch at the time of her trial. That must have been wild. That's like the president having released a book on ghost hunting before he was elected into office. Exactly. Here's a quote from the British Library about the book. Quote, Many elements of the witchcraft scenes in Macbeth conform to James's ideas and beliefs in witchcraft as expressed in demonology, news from Scotland, and his anti-witchcraft legislation. This includes ideas such as witches vanishing and invisible flight, their raising of storms, dancing and chanting, sexual acts, their gruesome potion ingredients, and the presence of animal familiars. It's fair to say that this book had entrenched itself in the culture then. I think so. This book contains rhetoric that vilified witches and encourages witch hunting. I'm going to read a quote from the book, and remember when you hear it, imagine reading it as a subject of King James. Quote, The fearful abounding at this time in the country of these detestable slaves of the devil, the witches or enchanters, hath moved me, beloved reader, to dispatch in post this following treatise of mine, to resolve the doubting both that such assaults of Satan are most certainly practiced, and that the instrument thereof merits most severely to be punished." End quote. This quote from Demonology is James's thesis statement, Witches exist, and we should hunt them. Wow. He really pours gasoline on that fire, doesn't he? You got that right. Little harsh there, James. Some of the editions of Demonology were published with an additional pamphlet, News from Scotland, in which the author James Carmichael, who later advised King James during the writing of Demonology, details the North Berwick witch trials of 1590. According to the British Library's commentary on that pamphlet, the University of Edinburgh identified over 3,800 cases of witchcraft accusation in early modern Scotland between 1563 and 1736. 84% of those accused were women, and half of those whose ages were recorded were over 40, and an estimated two-thirds of people accused were executed. That's about 2,500 people. I know, and that's just in Scotland, not the rest of Britain. I bet a lot of them were executed on evidence that is just as scant as what got Elizabeth Sawyer executed. We don't know for sure about all the cases, but that's a pretty good guess. If her case is exemplary, I can't imagine what other people were convicted for. I mean, it's not as if they were finding real witches. So demonology is responsible for a lot of deaths? There's no way to prove that, but I think its pervasiveness is impossible to ignore. 
But hey, at least we got a cool Doctor Who episode about James I going witch hunting. I'm not sure that makes up for it. I like to look on the bright side. So, to recap, Demonology was published in 1597 and republished in 1603 when James took the English throne. Sawyer was executed in 1621, and Witch of Edmonton was published later that year while James was still king. That's right. Given all that information, I think the play does a pretty good job portraying her. How so? Well, the real Elizabeth Sawyer was married with a kid, so Witch of Edmonton does get some basic facts wrong. But while the play is based on her life, I think it does a better job of representing the practice of witch hunting in general. Decker, Ford, and Rowley all highlight the bigger issue, that Sawyer is already guilty even before she practices witchcraft. It's all about perception. I think her onstage portrayal humanizes her in a way the pamphlet of her supposed testimony can't. What are some takeaways from what we've talked about today? Well, I think it's important to understand the larger cultural context of witchcraft in which Elizabeth Sawyer was hunted, tried, and executed. This context illuminates themes of societal responsibility in Witch of Edmonton and can be harnessed by theater makers producing the play to pose a modern audience larger questions about justice and society's responsibility to the marginalized. Practical approaches to integrating this information usefully into a production might include dramaturgical packets for creative teams and director's notes for audiences. What I find engaging about Witch of Edmonton are the creative staging opportunities that Ford, Decker, and Rowley have presented us with. When considering the witchcraft represented in Witch of Edmonton, it is exciting to consider the moments of flashy staging and design presented by the Talking Devil Dog and the Town Witch. However, there is an even greater opportunity to engage with the commentary that the authors were clearly making with the play on how society creates its witches. This can be done by playing into the already present, performative nature of the play's socially elite in stark contrast with Elizabeth Sawyer's plight on the fringe of society. The upstanding, rich, good men of the town are the ones who enact the most harm upon Sawyer until she eventually snaps and summons the devil out of hatred and desperation, thus posing the play's larger question. Are witches created by the society they live in? These dynamics can be accessed through design and staging choices as well as direction. There are clear opportunities in costuming and scenic design, but even for productions whose budget or design desires do not tend toward the elaborate, there are still chances to draw the distinction between Sawyer and the society that shuns her through conscious physicality and attention to staging practices. Lastly, it's important to consider that in much the same way as the trial of Elizabeth Sawyer in 1621, modern murder trials are blown out of proportion by the media and social sensationalism surrounding them. We, as a modern society, still neglect the socially marginalized while also morbidly interested in their public downfall. As you mentioned, Witch of Edmonton is a commentary on how society, in a way, creates its own witches and becomes painfully relevant in a world that marginalizes and subsequently convicts its members. Sensationalization in the media and the 24-hour news cycle led to the murder trial industrial complex, not just in our time, but in the 17th century. Even with no substantial evidence, people marginalized by society can easily be demonized, tried, and convicted. Witchcraft is just another excuse for a community to vilify its minorities and outliers, and while its practice is no longer persecuted in the United States, we see echoes of it in the war on drugs, anti-immigrationist policies, and tough-on-crime rhetoric.
there is less separating Elizabeth Sawyer and Julius Jones than you might think. This has been an episode of MBU Shakespeare and Performance Presents, Writ in the Margins. I'm Ariel Tatum. And I'm Gil Mitchell. Remember, don't feed the ferrets. so much for listening to Written the Margins. On behalf of my awesome students, I hope you've enjoyed this episode. All opinions shared on this podcast belong to episode hosts and their special guests, and do not necessarily reflect the positions of our places of work and study. Please check out our show website for more resources, including show notes and transcripts. Now don't be a drama turkey. Listen to another episode.